This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay. Also, um, I'd like to thank everyone who came on the amazing, amazing Shabbaton. Was I think I think it was the the best Shabbaton we've had, even music-wise. We had Shweki and uh, and, and Fiamenta and the Gina Band and and uh, what? Ma ma ma, ya ma ma. Oh, Stein, David Stein, David Stein. Ya ma ma, David Stein. And um, also the Rebbe's band. And uh, there was some girls from Benochaya Academy that played. It was, it was, it was just a, an unbelievable Shabbos. But what made it an unbelievable Shabbos, really for me, and I'm looking in the camera waving and saying hello to them, were these two young women who came from Kansas, from Kansas City, who were there for the whole Shabbos. And um, they made the Shabbos, and they brought along their little son named Zechariah. And I know that right now they're watching us all the way from Kansas. But now I know who they are, because I never knew who they were. And now they know who I am. And the first comment they made was, you were much bigger on camera. <laughs> so I was walking around the whole Shabbos like, but, but that didn't work. And they brought along their beautiful son, Zechariah, who has the same name as I do. And, um, Zachariah, how you doing? You should be sleeping. It's 10 to 10. What are you doing up? <laughs> and, uh, you really, you two women, ladies, um, really made our Shabbaton coming all the way from Kansas on their own, flying into New York. Two women that watched this shear by themselves in a basement every single Wednesday night for the last two years. So, um, we want to, we want to thank the satellite TCN because without them we wouldn't be able to get into Kansas. There were women who watched us on TCN that came from Lakewood. How are you doing in Lakewood? How are you doing in Cedarhurst? And wherever else they're watching on TCN. And of course, Torah Anytime and Kala Lashon. And uh, Baruch Hashem, you know, we come to this room and there's a certain amount of women in the room. But what you don't realize is because of our Nava and all these Shurim that you're not just sitting amongst yourselves, but you're sitting, you're in Kansas and you're in Lakewood and you're in Cedarhurst and you're all over the place. And that's really what made the Shabbaton really beautiful. Everybody got along from everywhere, and um, we showed our Kaddish Baruch that even in the hardest times that we could come together. Shi'urim were 24 hours around the clock. Um, Ask the Rabbi was over, and there were two Ask the Rabbis for up to 18 and over 18. And uh, Baruch Hashem, the girls were very sensitive to the Rabbis this year, and they let us go to sleep at 4.30 instead of at 6.30. And um, it was it was it was amazing. They went to every shir. It was just I, I don't have words. A girl sent me an email and said, "Can we do it again this Shabbos?" <laughs> if she if she knew all the work we put into it, she wouldn't have asked me that question. But anyway, it was a big chizik. I think maybe a big a bigger it was a big chizik for the girls, but it was maybe a bigger chizik for the staff. So we want to thank you very much. Okay, we're learning for Elia Ben Dora. We have a lot of names here tonight. We're learning with Fushalema, Avram Yishai ben Aviva, Rechama Chava Bas Rochov, Chaylani Bigal Bas Sarazel, Nechama Malia Bas Chanamachov, Rechol Yitzhak ben Feger, Fatih Dvorah Dasa ben Karid, Eliezer ben Shprinza, Aida ben Nin, Aida Bas Nina, Dober ben Yaakov Moshe for his Neshama. It's his, um, for his yard site. Okay, Leila Nishmas, Dina Bat Leia. Fushalema for Eliezer ben Shprinza, Moshe ben Esther, Yafadora ben Bloria, Ben Gloria, we raised about Malka Rosa Badina. Okay. Malka Bas Yitaleya Menachemonachem Ben Ophira Anuta Bas Carol.
There's some more papers here. Or Shechil ben Brindel, Yedida ben Michal Rafal, Chaim ben Hana, ben Yamin ben Sura, Yosef ben Sura, Menachem Mendel ben Chaim Asha, Nechama, Bas Sura, Devar Bas Fruma, Sura Pesel, Bas Brindel Yitl, Basha Bas Esther, Esther Bas Tava, Chaim Fega, Bas Brindel Yitl, Esther Bas Tava, Chaim Bas Menachem Riza, Yitl, Bas Fred of Lima. Okay. Um, the Shia tonight, a lot of the Shia tonight is, is whoever was there for Shabbos and I, Apologize if you heard the share already, but being that I gave the share on Shabbos, it wasn't taped, and therefore it's you wrote down everything on Shabbos. Oh, afterwards, okay, got me scared. Okay, well, I also wrote down what I remembered before I before I remembered it because I wrote my notes before the share. But um, there were a lot of people out there that didn't hear the share, and those that did hear the share um, couldn't write it down. So. Some of you in the room who are there, it's going to be a little bit repetitive. But, as we said in Yeshiva, Medav Chazran. The more you go over it, the more you remember it. So it's going to be a little bit of what I said, or a lot of what I said on Shabbos. We're going to go over it again. And, um, of course, every time I say something over, I add so and subtract. So you might not even recognize it. Okay. So the subject we called was implosion. There's something called explosion. When something explodes like a grenade, so it explodes outwards. Then if, you, if something explodes inwards, that's called implosion. There's such a thing as exploding inwards instead of exploding outwards. And I'm going to explain what that means. That's what this year is all about. So <clears throat> let's go back and we're going to connect um, Pesach to Purim a little bit. So we're going to go back and I'm to, the first of all tell you is, is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, one of the questions that's asked in Megillah's Esther is why did Mordechai aggravate and agitate Haman, right? All the other Jews bowed down. And Mordechai didn't bow down. Why did Mordechai bow down? Because Mordechai said, I came from Binyamin. I come from Binyamin. Binyamin never bowed down to Asa. When Asa came to Yaakov, all the children bowed down. Binyamin wasn't born. So Binyamin didn't bow down. So, so when Haman said, Listen, why don't you guys bow down to me? Your father bowed down to my father, Esau. Mordechai um, said, my father didn't bow down to you. My father, my grandfather was Binyamin. So I'm not bowing down to you. Now we know it says in the, in the, in the Megillah that Haman made the whole Gezerah on Klai Yisrael to destroy us because, it says very clearly in the Pesach, because Mordechai would not bow down to him. So the question is, okay, Mordechai, you don't want to bow down to him, fine. So sit in yeshiva. You know Haman's walking by at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Don't go out and, and, and get into his face and say, ha, 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 I'm not bowing down to you. What are you agitating him for? What are you aggravating him for? The more you aggravate him, the more he hates Kleisrael, the more he wants to destroy us. So even if you're not going to bow down, stay home. Stay in yeshiva. But it says that Mordechai went out every single time Haman walked in the street and he made his, put his face into Haman's face, and, and like, I'm not bowing down to you. He aggravated him, he agitated him. And Klai Yisrael, were, were, they were angry at Mordechai, what are you doing? And you, know, you don't want to bow down to him, you want to be a tzaddik, be a tzaddik. But don't aggravate the man, he's an anti-Semite. The more you aggravate him, the more he's going he's gonna to hate us. So it was a very big question on Mordechai why he did that. So I'm going to tell you why he did that. A very brilliant, brilliant answer. From Rav Shimshim Pincus, he says something very amazing. And he says that 
Amalek understands, Amalek specifically understands how to destroy Klai Yisrael. And he understands, when, when he came to Achashverosh and they made the party, they made the party in order for us to come and assimilate. They didn't make the party because they had nothing else to do with themselves. Haman had a meeting with Achashverosh, the Medrash says, and said to Achashverosh, He's Amalek. He always hated us. Before ya- before Mordechai bowed down, he didn't bow down. Amalek hates Klai Yisrael. Amalek wants to destroy Klai Yisrael. So before anything, he came to Achashverosh and he said, I want to destroy them. Achashverosh said, what are you doing? We don't have a chance. Paro tried, didn't make it. Nebuchadnezzar tried, didn't make it. Persia tried, um, Babylonia tried, the Greeks tried, the Romans tried. Achashverosh said, what makes you think that we are going to be able to destroy Klai Yisrael? Nobody's able to destroy Klai Yisrael. So, um, so Hamon, who's Amalek, who's very brilliant, said, because they made one big mistake, we're not going to make that mistake. They made the mistake, they attacked Klai Yisrael from the outside. In other words, the Romans came down with their armies, they burnt the base on Migdash, they murdered people in the street, the Greeks did the same on Hanukkah, the Babylonians, the, 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 what's it called, Paro, they always tried to destroy Israel from the outside. When you try to destroy the Jews from the outside, just like the Germans did, the Jews become very religious. When there's anti-Semitism, we become very religious. And we start to daven, and we start to fast, and we start to do mitzvahs. Then Hashem has pity on us. Hashem has pity on us, right? He destroys the enemy. So Haman said, let's not do that. Let's attack the Jews implosion. Let's attack them from within them. From Going from out of them, we don't have a chance. But if we can cause them to self-destruct from inside, that nobody tried yet. That nobody tried yet. So Achishverosh said, how do you cause the Jews to implode to destroy themselves from inside. And he said, assimilation. If you get the Jews to assimilate, to become part of the Goyim, then Hashem will get angry at them. At the same time that their assimilation, part of the assimilation is that they're not going to daven, and they're not going to fast, and they're not going to do mitzvahs. So their biggest defense will be lost. And within two, three generations from assimilation, there won't be any Jews left. The, the Rosh Hashiva of Esha Torah, Rav Noah Weinberg, said in one of his speeches that the spiritual holocaust that our generation is going through is much worse than the physical holocaust. Because the physical holocaust was finite. How many Jews died in the holocaust? Six million. Maybe six million and a hundred thousand, but six million. When a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, how many children, how many Jewish children have been destroyed? We don't know. Because he now married this non-Jew, so those children from now on are non-Jews. Had he married a Jew, there would have been children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And by the time you go five, six, seven generations, you're talking a million people from one marriage. So in the spiritual assimilation, in the spiritual assimilation, we don't know how many, this Holocaust, how many Jews are dying. But a lot more than six million. 
You can do the math. If you have 10 children, right? And they have 10 children, that's 100. That's one generation. And they have 10 children, that's 1,000. And they have 10 children, it's 10,000. And they have 10 children, it's 100,000. And they have 10 children, it's a million. That's five generations. Five generations, you could have a million people coming from one marriage. Now, they don't have, not everyone's going to have 10 children. So let's say, let's take it down to five. Let's do an average of five. So that's 500,000 people from one marriage. And if you have six marriages like that, not six, let's take 12 marriages like that, that's six million people. That's just 12 assimilated marriages five generations down the line. Do a thousand assimilated marriages, and there are more than that. Do five thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand assimilated marriages. Hundreds of millions of Jews will not come to the world. So Noah Weinberg said the Holocaust was six million Jews. The spiritual Holocaust is infinite. We don't know the number. So Haman was very brilliant. And Haman said, that's what we need to do. We need to go inside the Jews and get them to assimilate. And when they're assimilating, Hashem will be angry. They won't be davening. They won't be learning. And we'll destroy them. And he was right. Because the first time in the world that God ever wrote Xerah to destroy the Jewish nation was after that party. He was right that the assimilation, the implosion of getting the Jews to hang out in a club, in a party, online, with a bunch of non-Jews and feel at home and feel comfortable and share a table and share food and share laughter and social graces, he was right. Akash Baruch got that angry that Hashem signed our death warrant. So Haman was brilliant. Amalek is brilliant. So Mordechai understood that this was the end of the Jews. This was the end of the Jews because we were being destroyed from within implosion and he had to come up with an idea to save us so says Rav Shimshim Pinkis he was brilliant what did he do he got into Haman's face every single day and said I'm not bowing down to you I'm not bowing down to you and he got Haman to lose his temper and when Haman lost his temper Haman's whole plant went down the drain what did he do he wrote Xera to kill us from without. And once he wrote Xera to kill the Jews, to murder every woman, child, and man, he caused the Jews to do tshuva, to daven, to fast. And his whole plan of implosion fell apart. So just the opposite. Mordechai was brilliant. Mordechai kept getting in his face in order to get him to lose his temper in order that he should write Xera, and once he wrote Xera, we daven and talk about what happened, we were saved. So, we see from here, that the power of Amalek, the Kayach of Amalek, what he wants to do, is to make us implode, and make us want to belong to the other nations. Make us want to belong to the rest of the world. And every human being, which I spoke about on Shabbos, every human being has the need to belong. We all need to belong. One of the reasons that today the, the children at risk crisis is so huge is because when I was a kid, you either belonged in yeshiva or you belonged at home, but that was it. 
there was no street to belong to. If you were doing bad things, it was just you and one other guy. And that wasn't a Yetzirah, because I'd rather belong to something I wasn't so crazy about, even if I didn't want to go to Yeshiva, but at least my friends were there and I belonged there, than to belong to the street. Today, there's such a huge group of people in the street that if that the worst thing a Rebbe or a principal or Yeshiva can do is tell a kid, you don't belong here. You don't belong in my Yeshiva. We, ha- we as Jews and every human being has a need to belong. So if you tell me I don't belong in Yeshiva... So that I need to belong to something else, then I belong to the street. When I come to the street, there's a whole thousands of kids, right, that are in, that are on the street. Now I belong to a, to a different gang. So the worst thing you can tell a kid, you don't belong in my house. You don't belong in my yeshiva. Because when you do that, you're telling that kid, you don't belong. And we all need to belong. So we will find somewhere to belong. And that's why gangs in the United States are so big. Why do you want to be in a gang? You're all getting shot. You're all getting killed. And the reason you want to be in a gang is because even if I'm going to get shot and killed, at least I belong to a group of people. And, and that's the whole thing of being a Yankee fan and a Met fan and a baseball fan and a football fan. Why, why do you want to be a fan? Why does the person want to be a fan? You don't play baseball. So because you put your Yankee hat on, that means you're a Yankee player, that means you don't have to play baseball. No. But you can walk around saying, I am a Yankee fan. I am a Met fan. Even though you don't know anything about the sport, I belong to a group of people. I am on Facebook. I belong to a group. No, I'm on, I belong on Facebook. I have 900 friends. So now I feel good because I belong. I belong to a group of, I belong to a group of people. The whole thing of style that we wear juicy, let's say, right? If, what's juicy? Okay, Baruch Hashem. Um, it's a brand of orange juice that, um, so, so there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a um, a designer that designs juicy clothing for kids and for women and juicy pocketbooks and juicy shoes and all this stuff. Now, if I were to, if I were to sell the same, the same clothing and it doesn't say juicy on it, you wouldn't buy it for two dollars. But because it says juicy on it, you're buying it for fifty dollars or more. Why? Why? The, the clothing is the same. And the answer is that when you put on ju- something that says juicy, you now belong to a group of all the people that wear that style. When you wear a Gap t-shirt, it says Gap on it. It's not the Rosh Tavis of your name. Your name doesn't start with a G, right? The reason you wear Gap on it is because there's 5,000 other people walking around. You know, if that's good enough for you, you know, maybe you don't want to be part of the Gap group. But, but there's 5,000 other people walking around with the word Gap. The whole thing of style, the whole thing of style, the whole connection of why, why Prada, and you, you can have Prada shoes, and uh, at $400, and another pair of shoes, Bloomingdale shoes, that are exactly the same shoe at $95. And you see people buying the Prada shoes. Why are you spending all that money? Because when I put on my Prada shoes, I belong to a group of people who wear Prada shoes. And those are very rich people usually. So when I put on my Pradas, even though I don't have a penny to my name, it was my last penny for my babysitting money, and I don't have another dollar, but I'm wearing Prada shoes. So I belong to a group of pra- people who wear Prada. I feel a much classier, richer person. And that's why you buy a BMW and you buy a Mercedes. And the whole, the whole style and the whole brand name is based on, I need to belong. I need to belong. Because it's not the item itself. You don't check out the BMW and, and read all your books. And, and I have a BMW. I'm a Beamer. If I drive a Beamer, that makes me part of all the people who drive a Beamer. If I drive a Honda, then uh, I'm part of the people who drive a Honda. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's part of it. 
And that's the whole, that's the whole psychology. And the reason that it works, and it does work, because, uh, that's why fashion makes money, because all, all the different designer names. Designer doesn't know who you are. Designer doesn't care who you are. Designer's not gonna come to your birthday, to your lavaya, to your wedding. She couldn't care less. It doesn't make a difference. So why are you wearing her name? She's not wearing your name. Why are you wearing her name all over your scarf? And the answer is that if I wear that scarf, it's a Chanel scarf, and I belong to a group of people who buy Chanel clothing, which is a high-level group of people. So even though I may not be on that level, but the minute I put that on, that's who I belong to. That's the basis of, of, of style, and it's based on the need of a human being to belong to a group. And that's why there are clubs and different different uh, different things in the world that people want to join. Everyone who's saying, you know, to Arnav, we should have a membership. What do you mean membership? Why do you need a membership? Because, and the answer was psychologically, you need to belong. And if you don't, if Arnava doesn't have a membership, then you don't really belong. So a person has a need to belong. And, and, and Amalek understands that. And therefore Amalek said, Jews need to belong more than anybody else. Because in our spiritual DNA, we need to belong to each other. We need to belong to Klaal Yisrael. Klaal Yisrael. A group of Jews. We are Achdis. You know, you're one cell in the body of the Jewish body. So we need to belong more than anybody else. And if we don't belong to Judaism, we're not keeping Shabbat. We're not part of the fold, so to say. We will find something else to belong to. And never all the cults, there's an ashram up in the mountains in the Catskills next to where I live. It's an ashram. Uh, you know, I don't know, Buddhism. And they have a lot of Jews there. I've, I've dr- driven by and you can see crossing the street. Why are Jews going to an ashram? And the answer is that these Jews don't feel that they belong to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. So they go and they find all the cults in India, right? A lot of Israeli Jewish kids fall into these cults because the thing about a cult is you belong to that cult. And we need to belong. And therefore, Amalek understands that. Amalek understands that the greatest weakness of a Jew is to assimilate. We want to look like the Goyim. And we're never going to look like the guy, even as much as, as much as we want. And that was Amalek's thought process and koyach. And the question is, why would a Jew fall out of belonging to Klaisrael? Why would anyone in this room fall out, chas v'shalom, and feel like they don't belong to Klaisrael? So we said that the word Amalek equals 240. And the word suffolk, which is doubt, equals 240. Amalek equals suffolk. Amalek equals doubt. When you doubt something, when you doubt that there's a God, when you doubt that this is the right religion, Amalek is right there. It's like an opening in your defenses. And the minute you begin to doubt, I doubt in Hashem didn't listen to me, this didn't work out, that didn't work out, life's not good, life's not happening. You begin to doubt... That's when Amalek shows up. And I said on Shabbos, very interesting, that when Yaakov was fighting with the Malach, with, when Yaakov was fighting with the Malach, so it says specifically he was fighting at night. It says there were a lot of dust. There was a lot of dust. And the, the Medrash in Kabbalah says that the Malach, it wasn't a physical fight. It was a spiritual fight. The Malach of Asa was trying to prove that there's no God. It was an atheist fight against a Jew. And they were fighting all night. And the Malach saw by the morning, he realized he couldn't win. But it was a whole night. And during that night, there was a lot of dirt being thrown into Yaakov's eyes, so to say. And, and the Malach was trying, the Malach is Esav, is Amalek, it's all the same Malach, was trying to bring Suffolk 
Tiyakov. Look at you going through. Look at Esau's doing to you. Look at your children. Look what's going on with Lavon. He was throwing him a lot of suffix. But he realized when the morning came up and there was clarity, clarity is the enemy of Amalek. When he realized that Yaakov said to him, now give me a bracha. And he gave him a bracha, and the bracha, as we know, was that he called Yaakov Yisrael. He gave him the name Yisrael, Yashar Kale. What were they fighting about? They were fighting about doubt. That he was trying to prove that there is no God. In the end, because Yaakov won, the name he gave him is Yashar Kale. You will see the straightness of God. You will be able to see straight. You will be able to be clear that there is a Kale. That there is a God. Beautiful bracha that Esau and Amalek gave us Klai Yisrael. Now, what is he going to do? He gave us this bracha. Now there's no more doubt in Klai Yisrael. Now Amalek's going to lose. So what do you do? If you look in the name of Yisrael, it has the word Esh, Aleph Shin. So, he said if you could take out the Esh of Klai Yisrael, you could take out that fire, that warmth that a Jewish mother has, that warmth that a man who's learning Torah has, that fire. If you ever went to a big tzaddik to get a bracha, there's fire in their eyes. You went to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you went to Rabbi any of these tzaddikim. You walked into the room, you felt warm. You felt like you were standing and sitting in front of a fireplace. If you walk into a room by a tzaddik and you feel cold, there's something very wrong. The warmth. I mean, I went to Rabbi Moshe right before I got married. Sat down, he was glowing. There's a warmth. Kleistrol has H. And the word Yisrael is the word H. So Amalek knows that if they take the word Esh out of Yisrael, so what are you left with? A Yud, a Resh, and a Lamed. What does Yud, Resh, Lamed equal? What does Yud, Resh, Lamed equals 240. What does Amalek equal? 240. What does Suffolk equal? 240. If you take the Esh out of Yisrael, you take the fire out of a Jew, and you bring coldness to him, then he becomes Amalek, then he becomes something. You take that fire out, that you take that soul, that fire out of the Jewish girl, out of the Jewish person, she begins to doubt. Is there really a, is there really a Hashem? And they begin to doubt themselves. And what happens when a person doubts? He starts to get depressed. What happens when a person gets depressed? They become cold. And coldness and depression and doubt, is that Amalek. That's Amalek. And in fact, if you look in the Pasuk, in Pashat Kisaytzai, it says, Asher Karcha Baderech. He met us. Amalek met us on the way. Karcha comes from the word kar. He made us cold. He made us depressed. He made us doubtful. On the way, this is what he did to us. And who did he do this to? The weak people. The people who were, didn't belong. It says, who did Amalek go after? The cloud surrounded the Jews, but there were some Jews that were stragglers. They weren't sure. They were outside the cloud. That's who Amalek goes after. Because after the Jews, who are not 100% sure, the Jews who are doubting themselves, and the Jews who need to assimilate. And therefore, if you look at the Jewish people that aren't religious, many of them marry non-Jews. And it's a very interesting thing. You would think that a guy who decides to do this terrible sin and marry a non-Jew, if he's already going out of the fold, he's going to marry some actress. He's going to marry some model. I don't want to rag on anyone, but I happen to have a cousin, a faraway cousin, who married a non-Jew. And when the family heard about it, we figured, this guy's a very famous man, big in politics, very, very famous. 
We figured if this guy went out to marry a non-Jew, his parents were from, his grandparents were Rabbanim. If he went out to marry a non-Jew, she's got, and he was big in politics, the guy's gonna probably, he's, she's, much, she's gonna be gorgeous. I mean, why would he, you know, if he's stepping out already, if you're stepping out, you know, like, what are you stepping out for? And when we, we saw a picture of her, we were like, <laughs> for that? That's for, not for anything, but for that. And, and many times I have met people who have met, married non-Jewish people and they're, they're not exactly actresses by a long shot. And you're like, what is wrong with this guy? Right? There's a million Jewish women that are much more pretty than her and much nicer than her. She's mean. She's ugly. What's the deal? Why is he marrying her? And the answer is, and the answer is that once you step out of Judaism, your need to belong to another group of people it doesn't matter whether she's pretty or nice. It's that crazy need. So I'll marry any guy, as long as it's a guy. I want to step out of, of where I am. And you look at you like, you just don't understand. And most of those marriages are not good marriages. And the answer is that Amalek understands us. And he understands our weaknesses. And he understands this crazy need to be in college and to be outside of the education, to be like everyone else, to fit in. You got to fit in. I know a girl that goes to college, she puts on a pair of jeans, and they have these holes by the knees, right? And she puts on uh, a t-shirt, which you wouldn't wear, forget about it, right? At the beach, you wouldn't wear such a thing. And that's her college clothing. And I'm like, how could you go, how could you dress like this? She said, what are you talking about? I have to fit in. Otherwise, everyone's going to look at me. That's a mullet! I have to fit in. I have to fit out of Judaism and I have to fit in college. I don't want anyone looking at me like I'm different. That's his koyach. And that's why we have so many kids in the street today. Because they don't feel that they fit in. That's the greatest machla. They don't feel that they fit in. And, and I feel very, very strongly that's one of the reasons I started Ornava. Because Ornava was a place where... And I'm not looking for any cheering, but I want you to understand a place that every woman that walks in should feel that she fits in, whether she's modern, she's old, she's young, she's fardic, she's Askenat, because, because if you walk into a, let's say an Ornava, and you feel like you don't fit in, the story is not over. It's not like, okay, I don't fit in, I'm going home. It's like, I don't fit in here, let me go find a place that I do fit in. Maybe at the bar, maybe at a club, maybe online. But the, the necessity of a human being to fit in is absolutely amazing. We are willing to sacrifice everything to belong to something. And that's worse by us than by any other nation. Because we have an extra DNA to fit in to be part of Clyde Strong. If you're not, you're this crazy void and you try to fill it in with all kinds of craziness. And after everything, it doesn't work. You feel very cold when you don't fit in. And very interesting that um, if you wear clothing, you know, when you're cold, so they tell you to wear layers, right? Put on a shirt and a jacket and a sweater and a coat. Put on layers, right? And that I find that the children that I work with, kids that I work with, and adults that feel like they don't fit in and they're depressed and they're cold inside, so they also have layers, there are all kinds of layers, drugs and drinking and alcohol and the cigarette in the mouth. Ooh, now I fit in, right? Now I fit in. There's a kid that I have been trying to get to. He will not talk to me. He's angry at me for something I did to him. Whatever, I don't think I did it to him. But whatever, he's a kid at risk. 
every time I try to send rebbies to him, I, I try to talk to him. This guy will not talk to me. And I know that if I could talk to him, I could change him. He will not talk to me. He ignores me totally. So a few weeks ago, I came up with a brilliant idea. I saw him outside. Oh, he stuck smoking. I said, I know how to get him. I went ahead. I got a cigarette from one of my, my boys. <laughs> Marlboro Whites. And I took the cigarette. And I walked out of yeshiva with a cigarette in my mouth. And, of course, he was smoking. And I walked over to him. And I said, I, 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 you don't have to talk to me. I know, I know you don't want to talk to me. I know you don't like me. I know you're angry at me. Do, could you do me a favor? Could you give me a light? <laughs> Now, in the world of smokers, there's also Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments is if someone asks you for a light, right, you never refuse. If someone asks you for a cigarette, you also don't refuse, but you can say, oh man, it's my last one. And then you don't have to give them. So there are Ten Commandments in smoking, right? So I knew that if I lean over to him and I ask him for a light, he's going to have to light my cigarette. That's because... Because he belonged to the, so, the cigarette smoking community. So I bent over, and of course he had to light my cigarette. So when you light the other person's cigarette, you usually get an eye to eye. He's like, you know, I'm bending over to put my cigarette by his cigarette. And as my cigarette is approaching his cigarette, our eyes met. <laughs> For the first time. And since then, it's history. And once our eyes met over that glowing ember of the cigarette, I said to him, if we could smoke together, why can't we talk together? And it worked! We're talking. Is that insane? I was choking half the night because I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with a cigarette. If you smoke a cigarette, you belong to a group. You drink... You belong to a group. You do drugs, you belong to a group. So many children have started doing drugs and drinking and smoking and playing poker just to belong to a poker game where six guys are sitting around losing each other's money. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Because I belong to this chavra. We play cards. The need of a human being to belong is not normal. It's not normal. And it's a huge kayak. But you have to understand that the belonging that a Jewish girl has is the belonging to Hashem. That's where you need to belong. And you know what? If you belong to Hashem, you don't need to smoke. And you don't need to drink. And you don't need to play cards. And you don't need to have a boyfriend. Because you have a Hashem friend. If you belong to Hashem. Now, some of us can't belong to Hashem. It's a little hard for us. So you have to start with belonging to Klai Yisrael. And belonging to Klaus well will bring you to belonging to Hashem. You can't belong to Hashem so either you don't see him. Eh, eh. But you can belong to Klaus well. You belong to Klaus well, then you belong to Hashem. And then you get self-confidence. If you have self-confidence, you don't need the cigarette in your mouth. And you don't need to switch the drink when you're talking to somebody. You don't need the BMW. You don't need the Juicy. And you don't need all that stuff. Because you're cool without it. Because you're connected to Hashem. You're wearing Yitke Vavke. You're amazing. You know, you go to Tzadikim, and there are people waiting online to get to see them. And when they walked out outside, the people are all running after them. What are they? What, what, what brand name are they wearing? Because everyone wants to be close to Hashem. So Tzadik was close to Hashem. You want to be close to Him. So that's the DNA that we really have. Once we shed that DNA, Oyve. And that, by the way, is the basis of the Internet. 
That's the basis of Facebook, the internet, and everything else, because they understood that people want to belong. And, and, and the whole thing of Facebook is, is that you belong. And maybe if you, you didn't have friends on Facebook, you wouldn't be on it. It would just like be the regular thing. But once you're on Facebook, I'm on Facebook, she's on Facebook, we're all on Facebook. It's one chevra. And, 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 and one of the things when girls told me, they're walking, I'm now on, I'm not on Facebook anymore, is I don't, I, I, I don't feel like I belong to anything. Because seven hours a night, I belonged on, on, on Facebook, and, and this one and that one. I'm like, you don't even know what they look like. You don't even know what they... It doesn't matter. They're my friend, you know? They, her name is Khani, and she's a boy. Her name is Yehuda, and it's a girl. The guy says he's, she's 36, and she's 14. You don't even know who the person is, but it doesn't matter. I don't care who the person is. I belong to this whole group in a chat room. You go into a chat room, it says, 30 people in the room. You jump into the room, right? Hi, I'm in the room. All of a sudden, 29 emails. Oh, welcome to the room. You gave some silly name. Shelly. Your name's Miriam. Shelly. Shelly's in the room. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. What's going on, Shelly? What's new, Shelly? And you're sitting there like, wow. <coughs> wow. Nobody ever talks to me. All of a sudden, I have 30 people talking to me. Meanwhile, you have no idea who those people are. They could be Martians. They could be killers. They could be pedophiles. It doesn't matter to you. Because somebody's one, somebody's going to talk to me. I'm in that chat room. And then the next night, you're back in the same chat room. Because now you're the queen of that chat room. And everybody wants to, oh, Shelly's back, Shelly's back. Hi, Shelly, hi, Belly. <laughs> who, what, where, where do they live, what's up? I don't know who they are. Are they Jewish? Are they kosher? Are they human? Who knows what these people are, right? Doesn't matter who these people are. I now have a chat room. I have 900 friends. Good luck on birthday cards. <laughs> it's so sad. Girls that are on Facebook or were on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's so sad that when your friend has 600 friends, you have to go out and find 601. What is wrong with you? Because she has 600 friends, you need 601? And the answer is, you're feeding into your Amalek. Because when you turn that off, there are no friends. It's fake. It's false. It's bluff. It's not real. And the Satan understands that we need it so bad that we will go into the world of not real and talk to people for seven hours a night that really don't care about us. In fact, they have very bad ideas of what they'd like to do with us. And we are talking to those people. And if you were to meet that person in a restaurant, you wouldn't even say thank you if they bought you a drink because of what they look like. So the, 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 it's, all, it's all built on that. The whole fashion world, the whole sports world, it's all built on the need to belong. They went ahead and they went after the people who were on the way, who didn't belong. They were baderech. They weren't, they weren't stationed. They weren't stationary. They were baderech. That's what Molek goes after. The ones that are not part of something good. The ones that are traveling and looking. Oh, you're looking. We'll find something for you to belong to. And this is what Klai Yisrael was going through, and that's why Mordechai said, uh-uh, uh-uh. From within we're going to destroy ourselves, we're done. There's a Mishnah, there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. And the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says, Shleishetvarim, three things think about, and if you think about these three things, you won't come to doing an you won't be, you won't come to doing an avera. May I am basa. Think about where you come from. Think about where you come from. Think about where you're going, 
and think about that you're going to give din v'cheshbin, judgment, and cheshbin is not judgment, um, accounting for what you've done, in front of Hashem. So the question is, first of all, what din v'cheshbin means like this. Din means two people don't keep Shabbos. So they're both Mechal Shabbos. The din is, they're both Mechal Shabbos. The cheshbin is, one comes from a religious family, and one comes from a religious family. So the one who comes from the religious family is going to have to give a different cheshbin. Different accounting. So there's a din and there's a cheshman. So it says, if you don't want to do an avera, three things. Where you come from, where you're going, and giving din with cheshman. So the mission says, where do you come from? Ma'ayim basa, where do you come from? Me'tipa srucha, says the Mishnah, from a putrid drop. That's what the Mishnah says. That's where a person comes from. Putrid means rotten, rotting, dying, drop. Where are you going? Rima v'seleya, to worms. Who are you giving din with cheshman? In front of Hashem. Extremely depressing Mishnah. Torah is not usually depressing. If you were never depressed before, you're a happy-go-lucky person, and you learn this Mishnah. So, where do you come from? Rotten drop. Where are you going? To the worms. And at the end of everything, are you a freebie? You're going to like sit in Ganeidah? Oh no, i got to go in front of the judge. So let's, you know, who, who, who wants life? So there's an amazing, amazing, I said this Sunday morning, by the Shabbaton, an amazing thought, an amazing translation. Listen carefully. The mission is saying just the opposite. Anyone in here who has low self-esteem, this will blow your low self-esteem right out the window. You don't need anything else but what I'm about to tell you. What's the mission telling us that you come from a putrid drop? So I had a question, because I have a lot of questions, when I was in biology. Haven't that been my best science subject? I got a 99 on my regent, and not because of the guy sitting next to me. <laughs> Every other regent I can't take credit for, but that regent, that region I can take credit for. So I loved biology. I was very into biology. So we're learning reproduction. We're learning reproduction, and we learned that the woman, the woman creates a, a, a cell, an egg cell, and the man creates a male cell, many male cells. So when we learned, we learned reproduction, so it said that the man creates millions, millions of male cells, and the woman creates one egg cell. And one of the male cells impregnates the female egg, and, and, and that's how a, child, how a child comes to the world. That's how a child is conceived. So when I, when I learned this in biology, I actually had the chutzpah of asking this to my teacher outside of class. I'm like, why does the woman create one cell, and the male creates millions? Hashem should have made one male cell and one female cell. What's the deal here? Hashem doesn't do anything for no reason. Why would Hashem do that? If there's one female cell and there's one male cell, Mazel tov, right? Millions of male cells? Why? Of course my teacher said, I have no idea. <laughs> and I found an answer. And the answer is this mission. Uh, the answer is amazing. From before a child is conceived, there has to be struggle. Because a human being's whole life is struggle. And to be able to struggle and reach your potential, that is life. So before a person's even created, there's a, a struggle that one out of two million one out of more than two million are going to make it. 
And who is that one, girls? Each one of you. Each one of you is the one male cell that made it out of those two million other cells. Which means that before you were even conceived, each person in this room, each human being in this world, had to struggle to become that human being. And that is inherently in each person to give you the strength to struggle for your whole life. So the Mishnah is saying something totally different. Because the Mishnah is not true. The Mishnah is saying that, where does the person come from? From a putrid drop. Putrid means rotten and dead. You're the only one that wasn't rotten and dead. So the person comes just the opposite. The person doesn't come from the rotten and dead. The person comes from the one that made it, the one that was alive. So what's the Mishnah saying? The Mishnah is saying, where do you come from? You come from, you're the only one, and the rest of them didn't make it. That's where you come from. So how could you be depressed? If you are the only one that made that struggle, and you're the winner, and now you come into the world, you're going to have to answer for the other million, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand that didn't make it. Because they're all saying, look what she did with her life. She's online, she's doing this, she's doing that, she's not doing anything. Hashem, if I would have made it, I would have been at Sadekistah. There's a million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand other cells that you're going to have to give a din mecheshven to. Why did you make it? And you talk and made it or you wouldn't be here. And all the other ones died. So the mission is telling you something very positive. Listen to me, where do you come from? You come from the one that won. What are you so depressed about? What are you so down about? You were ready before you were created. Had a crazy struggle you against two million and you made it. It's a very positive Mishnah. And where are you going? You're going to a place where the potential will end. The Mishnah is warning you. You made it. But 70 years, 80 years, that's your trip. And that's it. And you're going to have to, at the end of that trip, give Din V'Cheshbin why you made it out of two million other cells that didn't make it. So, so Khanallah, Hashem's going to give Din V'Cheshbin. Khanallah. So you were born to your parents. While two million other cells didn't make it. No. What did you do? What did you do that you made it? And they didn't. So the Mishnah ends. You're going to have to give Din V'Cheshbin. So every single person in this room left behind you two million cells that didn't make it, that all wanted to come into this world, and all struggled to come into this world. You made it, they didn't. Every single person in this room. So what are you getting so crazy about? I can't do it, I won't do it, I'm not able to do it, I'm a loser, it doesn't work for me, you're not a loser. If you were a loser, you wouldn't be here. You're a winner. You're the winner. That's why you were conceived as a child. If you were the loser, then you'd be a putrid drop. It's a crazy Mishnah. And that's what the Mishnah is telling us. So don't walk around with your head down. You're like, hey, I'm one out of two million. That's pretty cool. That's a special club. All the ones out of two millions, and they're all together in Klai Yisrael. That's a crazy club. That's a winner club. That's a club of winners. But there will be an end. There will be a time where the potential is over, and the struggle is over. When the struggle is over, I welcome to say, okay, so what do you have to show for it? And every person is going to have to din b'cheshman. And we don't know when we're going to have to give that din b'cheshman. And if you know that, 
There's no coldness in you. Now let me tell you something about coldness. We reach out to find warmth in all the wrong places. There's a song like that. All the wrong places. There are many girls that talk to boys. And they think if they hook up with a boy and he cares about her and he says such beautiful things about her, that that's going to make her feel warm all over. And she's going to feel good about herself. She has low self-esteem. But if this knocker, 19-year-old guy who has all the wrong thoughts in his mind, is going to meet her and say, oh, you're wonderful. And don't listen to your mother and your father, what they say about you or what they say about school. You're gorgeous. You're beautiful. And uh, blah, blah, blah. it's all baloney. It's all bluff. And you know it's bluff. Would you like to hear it? And you think that's going to make you feel warm. Or people who drink, they think that's going to fix. Or people who gamble. Or people who go around and fool around and, and go to other people who are going to say nice things to them. And people who belong on the internet. And we're all looking, 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 looking for this warmth. Everybody's looking for this warmth. Let me tell you a secret. All those things, those guys and those things that you're looking for, those are all layers. But what do layers of clothing do? They don't make you warm. They keep in your warmth. If you're cold inside and you put on clothing and clothing and clothing and clothing, you're even going to get colder inside. Because if you take ice and you wrap it, right, the ice will last longer than if you don't wrap it. So the, the things that you're doing, and, and you could ask any drug addict that does drugs, that when they wake up the next morning, they feel worse, not better. Why don't you feel better? You took drugs, you're on a high, you drank, you're on a high. The guy, you know, went out with you and, and you weren't shaming the gear and you, wow, it's unbelievable. So the next morning you feel guilty, you feel cold, you feel, you feel terrible, you feel dirty. You, why? Why didn't the drugs work? And now you need two pills instead of one and two shots instead of two and, and a little bit more alcohol and another guy. Why aren't you happy? And the answer is because you're wrapping your coldness. And no matter how much you're going to wrap your coldness with all these outside things, you're just going to get colder from it. The only way for wrappings to work is if there's warmth from within. You're cold inside and you wrap cold, you're freezing. So you have to bring warmth inside. Once you bring warmth inside, then if you wrap it, then it stays very warm. What is warmth to a person? God. Warmth to a person, the ish, the fire, the shama, the ish. Spirituality brings warmth to a person. And if you're very spiritual, you don't need cigarettes and girls and boys and drugs and drinking and Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Pam and Rav Chaim and all these people. They don't need any of that. They're very warm. Not only are they warm, they give off warmth. So when you think that you're wrapping yourself and Nebuchadnezzar is what our kids do, they take the drugs and they do all this stuff and they think that, and then they wake up the next morning and they feel even worse. It's because they're cold inside. Amalek froze you. You're freezing inside. Now you're going to wrap with all this stuff, so now you're even more freezing. It doesn't help you. It hurts you. And if a person knows that they're talking the one that made it, and they have self-confidence, and they belong to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and they belong to Klai Yisrael, ah, you get up in the morning, you feel good about yourself. You feel great about yourself. You feel warmth. And then you can give off warmth to other people. If you're cold, you can only give up coldness to other people. And we're so lucky. We're so lucky what we have is amazing what we have. I'll end with a, with a, a story from the Chavetz Chaim to explain to you what every single Jew has. And the struggle, the struggle that we go through, you have to understand, is, is before, you're, before you even start, our life is about struggle. Because to reach a person's potential, you have to struggle. I always wondered, you know, I, I, I was in a kibbutz, and I, and I watched a, a, a horse being born. And the horse was born, and the second after it was born, it stood up, and it had teeth. And it was walking around the stable. 
And I'm thinking to myself, we're not even a horse. We're born. The best thing we can do is spit up. Forget about stand up. We can't stand up. We can't crawl. We can't talk. We don't have teeth, right? We can't do anything. We lay there plop in a, in a warmer and, and everyone has to take care of us. Why? A horse, nobody, it stands up right away. Why does Hashem create that? We don't have teeth. You have to teeth, and then you got to take Tylenol, and the kid is drooling and in pain and with fever. You know, you should be born with teeth. It's a beautiful answer. The child is not born with teeth because Hashem is perfect, and therefore he has to nurse. The child has to nurse. If it has teeth, it's going to hurt the mother. So HaKadosh Baruch created us without teeth so that we can nurse, and then when we're able to eat, that's when we get our teeth. It's brought down in, in, in Araya, the, the perfection of how HaKadosh Baruch created us. But what, what I have to struggle for, you know, you can imagine the dog in the house, you know? He sees everyone clapping and going crazy. The, the kid turned over. The baby turned over. Yay, call grandma, take pictures. The dog's like, I was five seconds old and I turned over. What are these humans so excited about? Oh, he's crawling. The dog's like, I've been crawling all my life, like big deal. Oh, he's standing. Like, what are they so excited about? Struggle. Potential. Hashem makes us struggle to walk. Struggle to crawl, struggle to eat, struggle to speak. A dog's born, it barks. A kid's born, it can't talk. We have to go to school, we have to learn. Why doesn't Hashem do that for animals? The answer is the animal has no potential. The cow has a potential becoming a steak or a hamburger. That's its potential. Human being has potential. To reach potential, you must struggle. That comes from before you're born. It comes from before you're conceived. For a human being to become something, you have to struggle. And if you understand that you have to struggle, then you struggle with simcha. You know that your struggle is because you're one in two million. That's what a Jew is all about. Yes, the Jewish nation is struggling. And guess what? At the end of the struggle, will come Mashiach. Because to get to Mashiach, you can't get there unless you struggle. You know, I told you once about my brilliant idea that teenagers have a big problem being teenagers. It's a big struggle for them. And parents have a big problem having teenagers. And teachers have a big problem teaching teenagers. So I came up with this brilliant idea that I'm going to open a nursing home. A nursing home for teenagers. We're going to take the teenager at 13 years old. We're going to put them in a coma. We're going to feed them till they're 20. When they're 20, we'll take out the medicine. They'll, they'll wake up and everyone will be happy. And it was a brilliant idea and I thought I was going to make billions of dollars. Imagine, take your teenager, park them in the nursing home, and come back seven years and pick them up. It was brilliant. The problem is... When you wake them up at 20, they're still 13. Because they didn't have the teenage years to struggle, so they didn't grow into being 20. So you have a 20-year-old teenager. What's worse than that? <laughs> it doesn't get worse than that. So my idea went out the window. I didn't go public. Nobody bought the stock. And it was a failed business. But it's true. Why does Hashem make teenagers? Why do you have to go through those five, six years? Your hormones are flying. You don't know who loves you. You don't know who doesn't love you. You don't think you love you. You have no idea what's flying. You're not in touch with your body. You're not in touch with your spirit. You're not in touch with anything. You're sugar. You're crazy. You're jumping off walls. Why does Hashem have to do that? Be a child till you're 19, 18, 19, then become an adult. Go from childhood to adulthood. Why do you have to become a teenager? And the answer is you have to struggle through those six years to become an adult. Without those six years, you can't become an adult. That's how Hashem created us. For a woman to give birth, she has to have labor. She has to go through pain. And the most pain, anyone who gave birth, take it from me, haha, right? The most pain is when they're two seconds or, or 20 seconds apart. And your mamas don't have, you don't have time to rest. 
Normally, it starts off with two minutes, two minutes, two minutes and thirty seconds apart. So, so you, you have a contraction. You're like, ah, oh, you're going crazy, and then it stops for a minute, and you can breathe, and you breathe through your nose, <sighs> right? I learned the whole thing, Lamaz, and you have like a minute to breathe, and, and then it starts again. Then it starts again. Guess what? You're not suffering enough, because at that point that you have a minute to breathe in between, you're not suffering enough. The baby's not going to be born. When they're 30 seconds apart and you have, don't have a minute to breathe and you're suffering like nobody's business, that's when the baby's going to be born. Whole life is about going through hard times to bring forth the product, which is you. It's in every part of a human being. In growing up, in walking, in talking, in eating, and in giving birth. It's the same thing. The last second, I, I always say it, I remember my first child, Malki, my wife was screaming and, and she was telling the doctor, I can't, I can't. He said, push. I can't, I can't, and she screamed, I can't, the last time, so loud, so loud, that my parents who were outside came running in and thought that the doctor was killing her, right, so loud, when she said, I can't, the doctor said, you did, and the baby was born, and that's exactly how Mashiach's going to come into this world, that all the swarms say, when Klai Yisrael says, yeah, we're in pain, and the economy's not so good, when we just come to a point where our children are off the deraf, there's cancer, there's no shalom bias, we're going through much, and all the rabbanim and leaders and the children and the people and the whole Klai Yisrael says to Hashem, I can't. We, can't. we can't do this anymore. We can't take it anymore. That's when Hashem's going to say, you did. Mashiach's here. Just to put that on all the swarm, in the greatest struggle, that's where the redemption will come. So the Chavot Chaim says, and I'll end with the story, Chavot Chaim says that there was a peasant, and this peasant um, lived next to a railroad, next to a train station, and he saw the trains always coming, and he wanted to be on the train, so he came to the place that they sell the tickets, and he walked up to him, and he said, I want to buy, he saved up all his money, I want to buy the best ticket you have on the train. The guy says, that's the first car, it's a berth, you have a bed, and cocktails, and meals, and linen, and... Uh, it's a hundred bucks in those days. hundred bucks, that's a crazy amount of money. But the peasant wanted the best. He saved all his money. He gave him a hundred bucks. They give him a gold card. Tomorrow, the train's leaving tomorrow. Okay, beautiful. He comes the next day. The train rolls up. He's a little bit early. He sees there's ten people running to the back car. He doesn't know where he belongs, right? He has a ticket. Running to the back car, jumping onto the back car. The back car of the trains in those days were cattle cars. There's cows and sheep and horses, Right? They all jump onto the last car. So he's like, I guess that's where everyone goes. He never went on a train before. So he jumps onto the last car too. Now, all these people that jump onto the car, they're going under the hay, they're going under the cow, they're going under the horse, the horse and the manure, all the stuff the horses are making, the cows are making, everybody's dodging it. He, and he's, this guy, he's Meshuggah, right? he doesn't know any better. He's, he's in, that, in, that, in that car and he's following all these nine, ten guys around, right? He's full of hay, he's full of manure, forget about it. Okay, the train goes. It's going for half an hour, comes to the, to the end, and the next stop, and the conductor comes into the back, and they know that they have these guys who go on the train for free, so they come into the cattle car, and they start looking, you, get out from under the hay, guy pops up, show me your ticket, uh, I don't have a ticket, you don't have a ticket, takes him, throws him off the train, goes through each guy, you don't have a ticket, throws him off the train, he finally comes to this guy, he's under a cow, right, <laughs> comes to this guy and he says, get up! Guy gets up, oh, what? Show me, you have a ticket? He goes, sure, of course I have a ticket. And he pulls out the gold ticket. Conductor says, are you out of your mind? You have a ticket to the first car. You have linens and cocktails and waitresses and a bed and music. We have two violins. What are you doing back here? 
with the, with the horses. He, he says, I, I never went on a train before, and I saw everybody get onto this car. So I thought that everyone would be on this car. He says, okay, he says to the conductor, so, so, so I'll clean myself up and I'll go into the front car. He goes, oh, I'm really sorry, but your ticket's from this station, the last station, to this station. You've got to get off now. He says, but I paid $100. I, he says, I know, but that's it. This, from this station, there's somebody else that has that front car. Chavetz Chaim says the story. He says, every human being, every Jew, comes to the world with a gold ticket called a neshama. Every one of us has a gold ticket called a neshama. What happens? We come into this world, and we see everybody's going to the movies, DVDs, and online computers, and non-Jewish music, and certain styles, and getting dressed not sneistic, and hey, what a great world this is. Everybody's doing it. I'm just one of everybody else. And that's where you live, in the sewer, your whole life following all the gashmias, all the materialistic things, and after 120 years, you die, you come up to the next world, and they're like, you have a ticket? Yeah, I have a ticket. Let me see your ticket. Neshama. Neshama? What were you doing with that neshama going to the movies? And going to these parties and hanging out? What are you doing? And you're like, the answer that Hashem hears more than any other answer but it's not my fault. Everybody's doing these things. And Hashem says, yeah, but everybody doesn't have a neshama. Everybody doesn't have a ticket. What are you doing in the cattle car when you're in the front car? You have the Torah and mitzvahs and Shabbos and Sneas and all these things. What are you doing in the cattle car? So you're like, oh, I didn't realize I had a neshama, Hashem. Okay, I'll go to the front car. And they're like, too late. Last stop on the ride. It's over. Now's the time to struggle. Now's the time to be in the front of the car. Don't follow what everybody else does because they do it. <coughs> Sometimes struggling can save your life. Struggling does save your life. By the way, if you're ever freezing to death, the first thing they tell you is keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Keep yourself warm. If you're stuck in the ocean from a, from a plane crash, or, 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 should never happen, or a boat that turned over, and you're in the water, they'll tell you, keep moving your feet. Keep moving, because otherwise you're gonna have hypothermia. Keep your body moving. Struggle. Movement brings warmth. That's what brings warmth. The struggle of a person's life is what brings the warmth to the person. If you're just gonna sit there, you're gonna freeze to death. So he says a story where, we're talking about struggle, Napoleon, and, and I'll, I said I would end, but I'm, now I'm really going to end. Napoleon, this is the real, this is the end of the end. So Napoleon was a very big general in the French army, you all know that. And they had a Russian, they had a city in Russia surrounded, and the soldiers were freezing. And they had to make a decision if they're going to go into that city and go and try to destroy it, or they're going to leave it alone. So he said, if the city is strong, it's going to take us a week to get in there, we're all going to die. So the only way to find out if it's weak is to go into the city itself. So Napoleon got dressed. This is a true story. It's a very famous story. Napoleon got dressed as a peasant. And he took his general with him. They both got dressed as like regular people. And they came into the city. They snuck into the city. And where do you go to a, in a city to find out what's going on? You go to the bar. That's where everybody talks. So they went into the bar in a big inn. 
And Napoleon sat down with his general and they were listening. And the soldiers that were in the bar were talking. I didn't eat for a week. I didn't drink for a week. And he realized that the army that's in this town is extremely weak and they'll be able to destroy them. And right before he was ready to get up and leave, one of the soldiers who had, one of the Russian soldiers who had seen Napoleon in a fight years before recognized him. And of course Napoleon was there with only a general and not armed. And he started screaming to his friends, the other soldiers, That's Napoleon! That's Napoleon! We got him! And his friends looked at him and said, Are you crazy? Napoleon's, you know, the red outfit and the whole hat. He says, I know what he looks like. He's a spy. That's Napoleon. He starts screaming, that's Napoleon. The general that was with Napoleon understood that in five seconds, Napoleon Bonaparte, the head of the French army, is going to be dead and the war is going to be over. So what did he do? He smacked Napoleon in the face. This is a true story. Smacked him in the face. He said, you idiot, didn't I tell you to get me a drink? He took him and he threw him on the floor and he started to kick him in his ribs. Screaming at him like, a, like, a, like an idiot, dope, you know, peasant. You idiot! He starts hitting him and punching him. Then all the soldiers froze, right? And he picks up Napoleon and he throws him out the front door. And the minute Napoleon goes out the front door, he goes after him. He says, and if you think that's something, I'm going to take you now. I'm going to put your face in the snow. And the minute they hit the door and they're out of the door, they jump onto the horses and they escape. They come back. Oh, and meanwhile, in the inn, the other soldiers tell this soldier, you're out of your mind. Napoleon, sure, Napoleon, yeah. His, his general kicked him and beat him? Come on, you're out of your mind. You thought you saw something. It was definitely not Napoleon. They start laughing and drinking and making a ganza shanda out of this, out of this other soldier. He's just some kind of idiot. That's not how Napoleon would be treated. And they come back, and this general is shaking. And he says to Napoleon, please don't shoot me. Napoleon says, why would I shoot you? He says, I smacked Napoleon. I kicked you. I punched you. I threw you in the snow. Napoleon says... You're scared I'm going to kill you? He says, gives him a hug and he says, you are now going to be a five, he was a one-star general. You're going to be my five-star general. You saved my life. You saved the French army. If you wouldn't have kicked me and punched me and abused me that way, I would be dead and the war would be over. Sometimes, girls, we have to get kicked around and punched around a little bit in order to save our lives. If you have real Imuna and real Bitochan in Hashem, you understand that the struggle, sometimes you need to be thrown down on the floor in order to keep you here. If you understand that, believe me, the smack and the kick and the punch that Napoleon took that night did not hurt. Did not hurt. Because every time this general kicked him, he was sort of laughing inside saying, kick me again, make sure this guy doesn't kill me. You know, do a good job. If you're acting, do a good job. I'm not telling you to turn to Hashem and say, kick me again. That's a little bit of a... a that's huge amuna. There was, the Gemara talks about someone that said, give me more, Yisurim. But that's... But understand, if you understand that when you're getting kicked and you're struggling and, and you're dating and it's not happening and you're married and, and the Shalom is not perfect and you're going through stuff, if you understand that that struggle is Hashem sort of pinching you Right? For whatever reason, to make things better, then it won't hurt. Or it definitely won't hurt as much. And therefore, in Klai Israel, in the times that we are right now, if we understand that, the economy and everything else that we're going through, if we understand that this is contractions, Mashiach is being born. And we are that child, by the way. It says that in the end, when Mashiach comes, the generation he comes in is going to take full credit for it. We're gonna, if Mashiach comes in our generation, we will get the credit for bringing Mashiach. Not Avram, not Yitzhak, not Yaakov, not Moshe, nobody. Our generation. Who gets credit for delivering the baby? The doctor who delivers the baby. 
What about the doctor all nine months that took care of this woman, that gave her nutrition and pills and sonograms and checkups? And Who delivered the baby, if anyone wants to know? How was the delivery? Who brought the baby into the world? Hatzalah? Then Hatzalah delivered the baby. The doctor, then the doctor. What, what do you mean Hatzalah delivered the baby? They went nine months to a doctor, they paid $10,000, she did blood tests, it doesn't matter. Who delivered the baby? Because Rat Hashem, when they ask, who delivered the baby? Who delivered Mashiach? We delivered Mashiach. We are the ones who are suffering in the last moments. It's called the pregnancy. It's, oh, the, okay. Sorry, women's, little women's lib. The mother delivered the baby. The mother had the baby. The doctor delivered the baby. The mother gets all the credit. I'm not, I'm not taking the credit away. Hashem is delivering Mashiach. Hashem is bringing Mashiach, but because of the suffering that we're going through, that is what's bringing Mashiach. And therefore, the suffering shouldn't make you cold. The suffering should make you warm. And if you have warmth, and then you surround it with Torah and mitzvahs and sneers, then you're going to keep in that warmth, then there'll be no depression, and then there'll be fantastic self-confidence, and then you'll become a very warm person, and a very warm person has the ability to help other people, and will get rid of timcha ezeichar amolek. That's the mitzvah. Wipe out the remembrance of Amalek. Why? Why not, why not Knanim? Why not other nations? Why not the Romans? Because you have to wipe out the remembrance of doubt. You can't have doubt. What are you doubting? You're the one that made it out of two million. What are you doubting? You're here. There are two million that didn't make it. You're here. You have so much you can do. You have so much potential. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop feeling cold. Stop feeling depressed. Learn from the Tipa Srucha. That's what the Mishnah is saying. Where do you come from? The Tipa Srucha. They should all be depressed. They didn't make it. Who knows who they would have been. You made it. So now use that. You're here in this world. And reach your potential. You've just experienced another Torah class. Brought to you by TorahAnytime.com